Come on, get your Bibles out and turn to the book of Judges. We're finishing up our series on Gideon. And we're in Judges chapter 7 this morning. And uh, these last several weeks, we've been talking about how God is not about quantity, He's about quality. And that God does not always need a majority in order to get His will done. He will work through a majority, no doubt. But uh, all through Scripture, I can show you locations where the majority was not on the side of righteousness, and yet God, through the minority, was able to do incredible things, exercise incredible influence, bring about incredible change, and uh, basically the victory was the Lord's. That's why I've always said one plus God equals victory. It equals victory. And the story of Gideon basically underscores these points. Um, You may think you're outnumbered. You may think you're overwhelmed. You may think you're out of your league. You may think everything is standing against you. You may think that nobody uh, is on your side. You may think that you're all by yourself. The story of Gideon has ministered to me more times than I can count. Sometimes that's just where you are. And the good news is you can be in the center of God's will and you're the only one. And here Gideon is, and we'll just review super fast. Gideon is in the midst of a national crisis. The Midianites are surrounding him. It's, it's, a, it's an enemy that is overwhelming. It's an enemy that is skilled. It's astute. It has surrounded the nation. The nation had got into this predicament because it chose not to continue to serve the Lord. I mentioned to you how through the book of Judges there were these cycles. And Israel would go through these cycles. And there's at least 13 of these cycles in the book of Judges. Where at one moment they would be at the top serving God, righteous, passionate about the things of God, but slowly apathy and lethargy would begin to enter in and seep into the nation. And soon they would one more time embrace other gods and other philosophies and other worldviews. And they would slip until finally they would find themselves in bondage again and they would cry out to the Lord and they would want to be, they would want to be set free again. And God would raise up these judges. And in one of these cycles, as they cried out, one of the judges was this man by the name of Gideon. And Gideon led the armies of Israel back to a place of passion, back to a place of serving the Lord. And we've gone through a number of these items in Gideon's journey to help us understand what God would in all likelihood do in our lives as well. Because there are some of you right now, you go to work, you go to school, you find yourself in arenas where you are outnumbered, you are outclassed, you're out of your league, and you feel like you're all by yourself. And sometimes what we say to ourselves is, oh God, if you just, if you could liberate me, or if you could get me out of this, then then maybe I could be more effective for you. But sometimes we find ourselves in the midst of an overwhelming situation, and we're outnumbered, and that's the place where God has us, because when He moves through you, nobody can get the glory but him, but him. And, and so I think it can be applied across the board rather easily. And so we've dealt with all the different things coming along in Gideon's life. And we're going to wrap it up this morning uh, with a lesson that I've entitled Unconventional Strategy. Unconventional Strategy. Gideon goes through all these processes, and the time comes that he has to go to battle. And when he gets the battle plan, it is an unconventional 
strategy. Now, I want to read to you a couple different passages here out of Judges chapter 7. And again, the Midianites are surrounding him. He's finally discerned this is the will of God. He must arise and go fight. Uh, he's seen God whittle the army down now to 300. There were 32,000, and now we've whittled it down to where God would have it, 300. And now he's ready to go to battle and listen to what happens. Judges 7, verse 12. This is what we read. Now, the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. How many of you know that's a lot? As numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number. That's a lot of camels, too. As the sand by the seashore in multitude. The odds are thoroughly and completely against you. Verse 13. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Now I'm going to stop here for just a moment because this is an interesting dream because it's an interesting dream of a loaf of bread tumbling maybe down a hill, hitting a tent, and it collapses this tent. Now, the point of the dream is relatively simple. It, it says this, there's this inferior item like this loaf of bread. This inferior item was going to overrun a superior item. Loaf of bread, tent. All right, loaf of bread does not normally collapse a tent. But the dream says it did, and what God was saying in this particular instance one more time was that an inferior item, one that you would have never thought that could have done this kind of damage, an inferior item was going to overrun this superior item. And if you were headed to battle with an enemy who was as numerous as locusts and whose camels were without number, I'd like that dream, wouldn't you? Thank you, Lord, for giving me that dream. Now, I want you also to know that we ain't going to beat these guys with loaves of bread. It's not like we're going to run up to them and beat them with the loaf. So we're going to have to receive the encouragement in this, but we're going to have to also get a little bit of strategy here so that we know how we're going into battle. So in verse 15, we begin to see the strategy. So it was that when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshiped, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Everybody's, you can hear everybody shouting, going, Hallelujah. How are we going to do this, Gideon? <laughs> All right. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies. I can, I can, you see, I just envision what goes on. They're saying, whoa, 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 we've only got 300 here. Now you're dividing us up into 100, 100, 100. I've already seen how this works. This is not good. We've been divided up into three different companies and he puts a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. All right. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. I'm just telling you how I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking, hey, the trumpet's great. The pitcher's great. Fire's great. I'll even holler what you say. But instead of hollering a sword, how about giving me a sword? We're going to battle here. Verse 19. So Gideon 
and the 100 men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew their trumpets, broke their pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets, broke their pitchers, they held the torches in their left hand, the trumpets in the right hand for blowing, and they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. In other words, they started fighting themselves. And the army fled to Beth Acacia toward uh, Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Meholah, and Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. An amazing story, is it not? An amazing story. You know, I mentioned to you last week, earlier in the month, that I had been to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I was able to speak at a men's conference there, and it was called Band of Brothers, and it was sort of a spinoff of the television show Band of Brothers, which, as many of you know, is sort of like a World War II Saving Private Ryan TV series. And as we were in this conference, it just naturally lent itself to talk about themes of war. And it was interesting to me that as I just was able to fellowship with the men that were a part of that conference, I just felt like God was saying there's a war word that is stirring in the earth, especially, especially for the men. Now, listen to me, ladies, that doesn't mean that you aren't uh, being solicited to join the battle as well. But I just feel like there's a war word stirring in the earth for men. But here's the deal. While God may be stirring this war word and while he may be calling us to battle on some issues and some things that are happening in our culture, we better understand how we're to do battle and we better understand how wars are to be fought. Because if we don't understand how God does these things, you do realize we could get ourselves killed. See, that was the whole point of Gideon's fear was that he understood going into battle and all the issues of battle, but when you're looking at an enemy and their size and their skill and the numbers and all these things, if you don't get warfare correctly, you're going to find yourself killed. I told a story while I was in Pittsburgh, so this may be familiar to some of you because I may have told it years ago, but I told a story there in Pittsburgh about how several years ago I was coming back from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and uh, I had to catch a flight there and there were some weather issues. And by the time I finally got to Atlanta, the weather had settled in and it was hard getting flights out of Atlanta. And it was the last flight to Charleston. It had to have been 1130 or 12 o'clock at night by the time I boarded that particular aircraft. Last one going to Charleston. I was tired. I was worn out. I'd had a week's worth of meetings, I, you know, and, and, and plus just flying all day long you're going through time zones. I was just flat frazzled. And so I'm sitting in my seat. In a few moments, there was a businessman that came in. He sat down next to me. I could tell he was in the same situation, probably waiting for flights all day long, getting his last leg to Charleston, South Carolina. And while we were just sitting there kind of half asleep leaning, you know how it is dark in the aircraft. Suddenly, just an unusual number of 18, I would say ages 18 to 25 year old young men began to come, uh, began to enter into the aircraft. And as they were coming into the aircraft, you would have thought they were going to a party. They were loud. They were boisterous. In fact, they were irritating. 
They were irritating on several levels. They were sitting in their seats and hollering at other people, you know, you know, five or six rows up. They're throwing things. Uh, their, their language was atrocious. Uh, you, it, it was just, it was just, everybody was edgy with all of these young men on the aircraft. And so we're sitting there and I could tell that the businessman next to me was getting even edgier than I was. Now I was almost in the flesh, but I can tell you he was definitely in the flesh. He, he was not happy. I think he was probably wanting to sleep or look at his laptop or something, but, but he was getting edgy, edgy, edgy. I could tell, and I could tell this was headed to somewhere not good. And, and you could listen to their conversations. Sometimes it's hard over the whirl of the engines, but I could actually hear their conversations, especially the two in the seats in front of us. And suddenly it dawned on me in their conversation that these were not just ordinary young men, but these young men who gathered on our aircraft were all Marine recruits getting ready to go to Paris Island. I could hear it going on. They were talking about this and that. And it just, it, I just became aware of this. Now, I've, I've flown out of Charleston enough that I have seen what takes place when the recruits come off the aircraft and they're received there at the airport in order to get to Paris Island on down towards uh, Hilton Head and Beaufort. And so as the businessman was just getting beside himself sitting there, finally I looked at him and said, listen, now, I said, I don't know whether you believe that there's a God or not, but you're fixing to see there is one and he's full of justice. If you'll just hang on for just a moment, these young men are going to be received in just a moment and they're going to Paris Island and, and whatever they've sowed on this aircraft, I will assure you they're fixing to reap here in about 20 minutes. And he kind of looked at me like, all right, all right, I'll buy it. So, you know, usually when you get off the aircraft, you're the first one out. You want to get on, especially late at night. But I was waiting in the back. I, I figured I'm going to enjoy this one. I'm just going to absorb and savor the moment of justice. That businessman stuck with me. I said, you just watch here in just a moment. They're going to be met by their drill instructor. And, I, and they don't know this yet, but it's, but it's, it's going to be midnight. It was like midnight or 1230 in the morning now. They don't know this yet, but they ain't going to bed tonight. Oh, no, 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 no. Their drill instructor is going to look at them and say, you've had 18 years to sleep. You ain't sleeping tonight. No, you mine tonight. And what was fascinating about the whole thing is as they were coming off the plane and, you know, you can just imagine these young men and they're gigging each other and they're, you know, jacking around. They're acting like these tough guys. That drill instructor, you know, and but he was cut about like that. You know, those drill instructors are cut like that. And they've got they've all got this forehead and these eyes that are sunken in. And all he had to do was stand there. And all he did was look. And you could. It was like. They knew they were in an alternate universe. They knew, they knew at that moment, life was changing for them radically. They knew. Nobody taught them anything. They knew. And he put them in a line, didn't yell, didn't scream. You know, you'd have thought a drill instructor, and I'm sure there was some screaming before the night was over. But that drill instructor wasn't going to do it at the airport. Oh, no, no, no. He just got up real close to them, almost like he was going to kiss them. And you could just see his mouth, just mouth some things into their ears. Now, I can only guess what he said. Things like, 
your mama's not here. <laughs> There's no phone calls for eight weeks. You, you, I, I, I'm just guessing. And all those young men, they marched into this bus and they were going to ride for two hours down to Paris Island. They weren't going to bed and off they were to their marine uh, training. And I understand that every branch of the service has its own boot camps. And, and I'm sure every uh, branch of the service feels like their branch of the service is probably the best at whatever it is they do. I understand I, since I did not serve in the military, I have no dog in that hunt, but I am aware of the fact that they, they brainwash Marines. That's all I know. They come out of there in eight weeks, eight weeks is all it takes. Eight weeks now listen to this. They, they do sleep deprivation. I, I guess some food deprivation. I don't know what all they do. But they, they, they do these things to where these 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds come out of that, 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 that boot camp and they think they're indestructible. How else could you get people to run onto beaches with live bullets zinging past your head and run up mountains and take the hill unless you sow something into their psyche that says that bullet doesn't hurt that bad. That's what they do to them. And you know what's funny? We call church a cult. But we're patriotic citizens if we support the military. Now listen to me. I think it's great. I want young men to go take mountains for me. I honor the military. I think, I think we have the greatest fighting force in America. But I want you to listen to this. Eight weeks, eight weeks, they get a crash course in winning wars. A crash course in everything from how to take their weapon apart and put it back together. The tactics, you know, they, they just aren't told, here, take your gun and go run at the mountain. You know, that's not how it works in the military. From weapons to tactics to strategies, eight weeks crash course and they come out and we are the best we're the best but our problem listen to me our problem in church life is is that we never survive our boot camps the minute we get challenged the minute the minute some rigors are put to our lives the minute there's a little correction and we look at look at another believer and say, I don't know that I'd sh I don't know that I'd go after the enemy quite like that. Or I don't know that I would do quite like that. I mean, we get offended. Why is it? Because we think it's easy. I'm here to tell you, boot camp is not easy. Fighting battles is not easy. Now, I understand Jesus. Jesus said my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I I was reading the other day this this. This article in a Christian magazine and the, and the gist of the article was simply, why do we make it so hard for everybody? It's really not that hard. It's really everything should be easy. So so let's just make it easy. Let me tell you something that is not truth in advertising. Sure, it's easy to believe so easy. A child can do it. I can believe in Jesus and and, and, and he's not giving me any hoops. I just simply trust in him uh, 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 by grace through faith. 
and he receives me, and that is relatively easy. It's relatively simple. It's not all that complex. But can I just share this with you? Jesus said, once you jump through the easy hoop, you see, it was easy getting on the airplane. It was easy flying to Charleston. It was easy going into your recruiter's office and signing the paper as he's shaking your hand saying, we're so glad to have you as a part of the United States Marines. You're going to be such a success, such a wonder. We'll never be able to make it without you. And that 18-year-old walks out of there and going, that was the nicest guy in the world. He just loved me and they're just going to let me do all this. And that recruiter is laughing behind that door going, he's fixing to meet a drill instructor. But our problem at church is we think everybody is the recruiter. And sometimes you got to have a drill instructor in your life because if they sent you to war after you signed up, you'd just be target practice. But you go through these rigors in order that you know how to battle. But our problem has been we redesign everything because we want people to find it easy. And then once they go out into the world and they find out it's not working and the devil is alive and well and he's shooting at me and I don't know how to deal with it and my life's falling apart and I'm still just as dysfunctional as my heathen neighbor... Then suddenly they go, this thing called Christianity isn't working. It's not that Christianity doesn't work. It's that nobody told you you hadn't been through your boot camp yet. That's why you hang around here, man. I'll just tell you like it is. Truth in advertising. The choice for a Marine is this. Do I want it easy? Or do I want to win? And that's what I'm looking at believers everywhere saying. Do you want it easy? Or do you want to win? See, my Bible calls me to triumph. I'm more than a conqueror. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I've been called to a victory. I've been called to a place in him that nothing can stop me. Come on now, you got to get that in your psyche. It doesn't matter what fiery dart of the enemy is thrown at you. It don't hurt that bad. Especially if your shield of faith is up. Are you following me? we we got to get a different mentality in us. And, and Gideon had to get some mentality shifts as well. Because in order to win battles, really, bottom line is you're going to have to understand there's going to be some unconventional methods that are used in the kingdom of God in order for you to be victorious in your Christian walk. Spiritual battles are not won by conventional means. I'll say that again. Spiritual battles are not won by conventional means. You can't have some natural, conventional strategy or tactic. In fact, I'll just be honest with you. Most spiritual battles are won unconventionally. If you don't believe that, listen here to 2 Corinthians 10. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. Guys, we have that on the screen? Yeah. It says this. For though we walk... In the flesh, we do not what? War according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. So this has been God's way all through Scripture. I mean, I want you to think about this. When the Egyptians were against Moses, do you understand that the strategy was a staff? A stick. When Joshua 
was facing the giants and all the different ites that were in the land. You know, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. When he was fighting all of the ites, you realize the strategy when they reached the first city was simply march silent six times. Shout your lungs out the last time. When David looked at Goliath and the Philistine army with Goliath had paralyzed all the Israeli army, the strategy was what? Pick up a sling and get yourself five smooth stones. Jehoshaphat, when he looked at the Moabites and he knew he was outnumbered three to one, sought the Lord and received a prophetic word. And the strategy was send the choir out in front of the army. <laughs> I thought that was kind of cool. Let the praisers go out first and let them sing praises to God before we ever go into battle. You've got to understand that if you're in a battle right now, that God is going to reveal and unveil an unconventional way in order that that battle can be won because the battle is not yours, but the battle is the, the Lord's. And the minute you think you have to have certain tools or certain atmosphere or certain uh, situations to line up just right for you in order to produce a victory, then you've fallen into carnal warfare. God does not have to have all the natural items lining up in order for Him to move. God can move over and above, around, through, under. God isn't stopped by anything natural. You know, that's the difference between between really Islam and Christianity. You understand that in Christianity, Jesus died for you so that you wouldn't have to die. In Islam, Muhammad says, you're to die for him. Thank you very much. I'll stick with Jesus. See, that's why jihad, jihad in, in, in a Christian mentality uh, is not uh, wiring yourself up to explode. It's not an IED it's not an act of terrorism. That's why Islam does this, because their warfare can only be done carnally. Their warfare can only be done in the flesh. But the Lord said, our battle is not with flesh and blood. I don't have to wire myself with a bomb. I have the Holy Ghost inside of me. The Scripture says it's dunamis power, dynamite power, explosive power. I've got an explosion inside of me already that's fixing to come out that can overcome anything in anyone. I don't have to blow myself up. He's got explosive power inside of there. Zechariah 4 and 6 says, It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So there's going to be some unconventional things that will happen. And I'm just telling you, if God, if God opens up our land and He gives us our new church, it's going to be in unconventional ways. If, if we're able to reach our region and our state, and our nation. It's not because of our numbers. I'm convinced of this. You don't need great numbers to capture the attention of the world. You just need to have God moving inside of you in an unconventional strategy. So a quality army must be ready for an unconventional battle plan. It not only works this way in churches, it works this way in your life too. Some of you are facing battles right now. You've got battles at work. You've got battles at school. You've got, you've got battles in your neighborhood. You've got family battles that you know you're fixing to walk into even through the holiday season. And right now you're going, oh, sweet Jesus. I'm fixing to walk into a war zone again, even, even during the Thanksgiving season. And already you're just in a lather 
because you know when you go in there, there could be bombs and darts thrown at you. And, and you know that if, if you get hit enough, you could suddenly fall back into the flesh. And, and truth of the matter is, there probably been times there's been a bigger mess after it's been done and completed than, than you would have ever wanted. And, and the, the key is you've got to get divine strategy. And I'll give you a clue. It could be strange. There were three things, real quick, that Gideon gave to his army. Three things. I'm going to go through this real fast. Number one, he said, broken pitchers. He said, we're going to get some pitchers and then we're going to break it. It literally means, I believe the imagery in all of this is something that can help us. Broken pitchers really indicate the crucifixion of the flesh or the brokenness of our lives. Some of you may remember the story of the woman who broke the alabaster jar over Jesus and they had this big to-do over whether or not that was a waste of money, etc. Isn't it interesting how people are always so worried about us wasting things on Jesus? We all want to be Jesus' CPA, don't we? Oh, that waste. We, we, always, we always think God is just, just so economical. You have never read what God required for His temple. You know why God doesn't give a rip about being economical? It's because he owns it all. We're the only ones that give a rip because we're bound by our natural mind. But, but the picture represented really the brokenness of the flesh, the crucifixion of the flesh. And, and they had to break it. And can I just tell you, as you go into battle, you're going to have to break the flesh. You're going to have to die to your agenda, die to your ego, die to your ambition, your pride, the measuring stick of success, what you think. Listen, you don't win wars and think you're going to come out and be all that in a bag of chips. It ain't about you. It's about him and him coming forth as the one who's glorified. So broken pictures. Number two, he gave them torches. I think torches represent the presence of God at Represents his purity and his holiness because of the fire. Fire is a symbol of cleanness before the Lord. Fire purges those things, uh, especially metals. It raises up the impurities. And so they can be, they can be scooped off. And so, so truth of the matter is, is that God wants to purge us. Israel lost battles when it was impure, when there was sin in the camp. You remember when they were going through the land? And there at Ai with Achan and his family, there was sin in the camp and it shut down the whole war machine. And, and God wants to purify us as we go into battle. And then finally, number three is trumpets, declaration and praise. Every battle has a component of these two things that cannot be ignored. You're going to have to learn before you go into a battle, you're going to have to praise God for the victory before you ever step foot on the battlefield. Yeah, you want to win? You're going to have to learn that before you let your feet step back into the war zone, you're going to have to thank him that victory is yours. You're going to have to learn how to get your confession right. You're going to have to learn how to, how to speak those things that be not as though they were. You're going to have to learn to declare some things that you know to be true, whether or not you can see them with your eyes yet. You're going to have to, if you're going home for the holiday and it's a challenging time, you're going to have to begin to thank God that this holiday will not be as it was before. You're going to have to thank God that there's going to be favor and there's going to be influence and there's going to be input and there's going to be peace. Why don't you just do your work a little bit? If, if you've got devils that are running around the family tree, then why don't you bind them before you get there? 
Most of you can label them and you know them already. Just, just bind them. I bind, I bind that controlling spirit in Jesus' name. And I thank you, Lord. It's going to be a sweet spirit around the Thanksgiving table in Jesus' name. You see, it, it's going to take some unconventional strategy that he gives us in the word because I'm just telling you, if you go in there and you're all suited up for a battle in the flesh, I found out that people that battle in the flesh, especially the carnal, are really good at it. They're way better than I am. And I usually end up getting the raw end of that deal. But if I get before the Lord and I begin to implement his ways, it is amazing what he can begin to do. Trumpets, trumpets. Psalm 149 verses 6 through 9 tell us that praise is a weapon. It's like a two-edged sword in our hands. Psalm 150 tells us that just about everything can praise the Lord. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. And, and so we've got to begin to praise God before we ever get there. Now, the truth is you'll never defeat a spiritual enemy using conventional methods. And if you don't see your current battle in terms of its spiritual component, then you're going to forever live in defeat. Guys, post Ephesians 6.12 real quick. It 6.12. Ephesians 6.12. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Come on now. Get your eyes. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Let me interpret that for you right now. People are not your primary problem. You say, well, you don't know some of the folks I'm hanging around. I understand. I've hung around some of those same folks. I get it. But you need to understand what's going on in people. It's people per se is not the problem. It's the spirit at work in people. That's the problem. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So you've got to understand. Let me just give you some. I'm going to go down the list here real quick. Let's just say you're facing debt. You're facing unexpected debt. Let me tell you, an unexpected debt is not just a bill that you can't pay. Do you understand that it's a manifestation of the spirit of poverty that's wanting to attach itself to your life? Are you following me? Some of you get bills in the mail and you say to yourself, what in the world's going on here? And you freak out because you got an unexpected bill and, and immediately you go to the natural. You say, what's in my checking account? What's in my savings account? What's going on here? What's going on there? Folks, it's a devil. It's a poverty devil. But you look at that and you just say, I break. I break the spirit of poverty and I thank you, Lord, that you're going to bring about resource that's going to help me do this. Sickness and disease. You know, I, I hear this and I understand people get sick. I, I catch colds. I have. And I get allergies. I have. I'm not denying that these things happen in people's lives. But can I just share this with you? That there comes a moment because it's already the time of year. Everybody's pushing the flu shot. I went in to see the doctor the other day and they were pushing the flu shot. Now, you may want a flu shot. I'm not telling you not to get a flu shot. You get a flu shot if you want a flu shot. All right. And I don't, I'm not even saying there's anything wrong with it. I think, I think for me in particular, I'm going to trust my God first and, and then we'll worry about what shots I need to get. See, now that's just me. Okay. Now listen, now listen, don't go out of here and say, pastor said, don't get a flu shot. And then you end up dying of the flu because you didn't have pastor's faith. Don't put that one on me. 
Get the flu shot then. I'm just telling you, though, that's a sickness devil. People think that, that they're, they're, they've got children and they've got uh, uh, family members that are hooked and addicted to drugs. And they think the drug's the problem. No, the drug's not the problem. The spirit of sorcery that's on them is the problem. And until they break that sorcery spirit, it'll never change. I could go through the whole thing. We get upset at abortion, as we should get upset at abortion. You know, I understand it's a spirit of murder. It's the same spirit that came across the land when Jesus was born and Herod issued the proclamation that all males under the age of three should be killed. Do you understand that still happens to this day? Because the enemy fears that in the five million plus babies that have been aborted in the United States of America, the enemy knows that it's taking out apostles and prophets and missionaries and evangelists. You hear me, don't you? There was, I believe that there was a whole army of godly servants in all those aborted babies. And it's not just convenience. It's the enemy who's trying to snuff out what God would love. But you see, that's the spirit of murder. Homosexuality is a spirit of perversion. Prostitution is a spirit of whoredom. Socialism, communism, fascism is a spirit of antichrist. It doesn't matter whether you're a communist or a fascist, which are opposite ends of the same spectrum. It's still antichrist. You understand? That's a spirit. We have a spirit in America. Our problem is not the White House or the Congress. You may have cheered at the elections, and, and I guess there is a point that things are slowing down, and I guess we can be happy about that. But I'll be the first to tell you right now, it hadn't stopped the enemy if we don't arise and take on the spirit. So what do we do, Pastor? What do we do? Let me give it to you real fast. I'm gonna, and I mean this is going to hit you fast. How do you cultivate this unconventional strategy? Number one. You've heard me say this a thousand times. You've got to get a mindset of victory rather than just relief. We can't battle our ways just to a moment of relief. See, that's, that's, my, that's my greatest concern is, is that even, even if Congress gets changed and there's this whole power shift, if everybody just takes a big old breath and just says, maybe things will be right now. Maybe it, No, it's not relief. It's victory. We don't battle to the place where we get some breathing room. We battle to the place where there's relief. Excuse me, where there's victory, not just where there's relief. So we've got to change our mentality. And I've told you this before, that when you sense relief, enjoy it. It's good. But all it means is you got the devil on the run. Keep after him. Keep after him. Psalm 35, David says, I'm praying that the angel of the Lord continues to chase all my enemies. Let him chase them on and he let him beat them as dust in the wind is what he says. That they may never be able to rise again. And that's in the Bible. You say, well, that's not very compassionate. Well, I'm being compassionate on a devil. Now, I love people, but not that spirit that's working in people. Amen. So we got to get a different mentality, a victory mentality. Everyone say victory. Come on, a victory. God hadn't called you really to lose. The reason we lose is because we haven't understood whose battle it is. Number two, got to start using the power of the spoken word. Our words can change things tremendously. It's an unconventional strategy. I realize there's some people that say words are just words, and, and sometimes they can be just meaningless gibberish that come out of comes out of our mouth but but the bible tells us that when words are linked to our faith 
It's amazing what can happen. Some of you may remember. You remember back here on St. Andrews, uh, right down by the post office at that intersection? Remember that old cruddy, disgusting porn shop that was there for years? Remember that thing? It's just disgusting. One little old guy stood out there with his sign. Now, I'll be honest with you, I never stood out there with him with a sign, and, and maybe I should have sought God, and maybe I should have been out there. But I will tell you, I, I did this probably along with a lot of people. Every time I would drive by that disgusting pornography shop, I'd point my finger at it, and I'd say, I curse the works of darkness and the spirit of perversion. I curse it in the name of Jesus. I curse it in the name of Jesus. Let it dry up. Let their clientele be ashamed. Lord, I pray right now, it goes into bankruptcy. You say, you'd pray that? Absolutely. Just like that old abortion clinic. Let it, let it go into bankruptcy in Jesus' name. Say, well, people work there. I, not on the blood of the innocent. We are too busy being compassionate to devils. We break that. They can find another job. Praise God. But I'm telling you, it didn't take somebody going in, blowing the thing up like some jihadist. That is a carnal battle. And the minute, the minute we allow ourselves to go into carnality, we're going to find ourselves in a world of hurt. But the minute we understand that we have authority, and could you imagine if every believer in Charleston would just go down the road and they would point at that and just say, I curse that in the name of Jesus, I'd be willing, if I were a betting man, to bet you that within 30 days it would dry up. Amen. I'll just tell you this story. I mean, I don't know how it happened. Some of you have been to my neighborhood, and I have a neighbor, and they're, they're nice people, but, but I think they're Hindu. Is that right, Tracy? Are you here? I think our neighbor, yeah. Aren't they Hindu? I don't know. Yeah, anyway, they had, these, they had these two lions. I mean, our neighborhood is just, you know, our, drive, my, our driveways aren't from here to the front row. Muslim, okay. They aren't from here to the front row. They right next door to Svetlana. Nice people, aren't they, Svetlana? Just nice people. But is it not true, Svetlana? They had these like lions on both sides of their driveway, didn't they, for the longest time? And it's like it had lipstick on their lion. And I think their ears maybe had like earrings. And they just sit there. Kind of like this gargoyle. Just sit there. And, 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 and it's not like, I mean, our driveways maybe, you know. And I just said, first off, you're just saying this driveway isn't long enough to have some. I mean, it's just this long. And I remember we were visiting with Svetlana one time and, and, and we, we love Svetlana and her family. And she's Ukrainian, by the way, loves Jesus. And Svetlana has just a wonderful accent. And she, she would say, I, I don't like those lions. I don't I said, well, Svetlana, we don't like those lions either because you could tell there was a vibe on the lions. Now, I, I, you know, what are you, you going to do? What are you going to Are you going to like some about two o'clock some morning, put some put some black clothes on, go run across the street and kidnap the lion? Like, where are you going to put it? Going to have some big truck out there with its engine going vroom, 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 while you're two o'clock in the morning and throw. I'm just doing God's work here. I'm just I'm just seizing my neighborhood for Jesus again. No. You know what we did every time we went by? We love those people. Jesus died for those people. Jesus loves those people. 
Don't miss, please do not misunderstand. But I'm tired of having some false God stare me in the eyes with lipstick on. And we just, every day, we just, when I curse the works of darkness. In Jesus' name, I curse the works of darkness. I don't know how long we did that. I know Svetlana was doing it too. We, got, we had it going both ways. And we went on vacation. And we were gone for 10 days or so. And when we came back, they were gone. The lions were gone. So I went back to Svetlana. I said, where are the lions? I think she was talking with Trace. And Svetlana goes, isn't it true? I don't know. They just left one day, didn't they? Just like God reached down. Someone stole them. God just reached down. And grabbed the lipstick lions. And they aren't there anymore in my neighborhood. No idols. I was just glad I was out of town when the whole thing went down. I had an alibi. God gave me an alibi. Amen. Come on, you got to get that in your system. Power of the spoken word. Number three, we got to praise God for the victory. Got to thank God in advance. You know, it says, in everything give thanks. And now I used to wonder what that verse meant. And I finally figured it out. It doesn't mean that you thank God for calamities that are coming into your life. You know, you don't thank Him because, you know, everybody, you know, you got family dying, you, you're, 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 you're impoverished, you can't pay your bills. You don't say, well, thank you, God. I'm just, I'm as poor as Job's turkey. I'm, uh, you know, I thank you. I thank you. I got leprosy running through my house. I, I give you praise. That's not what that means. When it says in everything, give thanks. And if you'll read that carefully, because it's right, it's attached right there with, he says, do not despise prophetic utterances. And I've become convinced that there is a prophetic aspect to praise. That as I begin to thank God, I begin to say, thank you, Lord, that you're bringing me out in victory. Thank you, Lord, that no matter what it looks like right now and no matter what's going on in my life, that you are purposing good to come to me. And I thank you, Lord, that goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I thank you, Lord, that you're going to rectify everything around me. You're going to figure it all out. I thank you. And folks, we got to get to the place. If you want to win battles, you got to thank God in advance. In advance. Don't just wait until he's done it in advance. Can you imagine when God starts hearing him being thanked in advance and, and you're saying, thank you, Lord, that you're sending resource my way. And he's going, I didn't send resource your way. Have mercy. They think I sent resource. We better send them resource. <laughs> you understand there's, I'm, I, there's a little liberty in here. Number four, application of the blood. I'm just giving you, these are unconventional strategies. Revelation 12, 11 says, and they overcame him by what? The blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives even unto death. The blood of Jesus. I tell you, this is really sad. I was sitting at a table with some minister friends one time and they were making fun. I always think of Miss Louise whenever I say this. I don't know why I just, I'm, I, I guess it's because Miss Louise and I can identify because we kind of hung around holiness circles all our life. And so we've kind of been around the same thing, but they were making fun of the phrase, pleading the blood. What does that mean? Pleading the blood. Pleading the blood. You know, some people are just obnoxious. Pleading the blood. Plead the blood. 
I don't see that. I don't see that anywhere in scripture. I don't see pleading the blood, pleading the blood. All right. Let's do it this way. How about let's use a bigger word? Let's use appropriate. Because you know what? You can appropriate the blood. You better hope you can or none of us are saved here. You sure enough better believe that one. Because we can, by spoken confession, plead the blood. We can, by spoken confession, apply the blood. The enemy doesn't like the blood. The blood speaks. It cries out. It breaks the power of sin and evil and every chain. The blood, the blood, the blood that Jesus shed for me. Way back on Calvary. The blood that Jesus shed. It'll never lose its power. Amen. Come on, unconventional strategy. Number five. Just giving you these real quick dressing in the armor of God. I'm just reminding you of things. I, th- there are, there are week long messages under each of these points. I'm just telling you right now, put on the armor of God. I was telling the folks on Wednesday night, it, you were headed for the holidays. Hey, you know what? I love, I love my in-laws. I love my sister-in-law. I love these people. They're wonderful, great people. And they love Jesus. And to be candid, these last number of years have been wonderful years. And, and so we've enjoyed uh, interacting uh, with our family. Uh, I've got family as well, and, and we spend holidays with them, and I love my family and all the rest, and, and we don't anticipate any problem and uh, believe that everything will go smoothly, but how many of you know I am not ignorant, brethren, to the enemy's schemes? So what do you do? I put on what? The armor of God. Put on the armor of God. And when you're dressed in the armor of God, that way you're dressed for spiritual battle. You're not caught flat-footed. Amen. Number six, praying in the Spirit. Yeah, man, on a Sunday morning, I'm going to talk about this. I always love talking about this on a Sunday morning. Praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit. Praying, praying in a prayer language. Yes, praying in tongues. I'm just going to let that absorb here for just a minute. I, I believe that there's a language of the kingdom. You know what? I, I don't know about you, but you know, God is at least bilingual, right? I think he's multilingual. I'd be willing to bet that God knows Chinese and Russian and French. And Wouldn't you think that? I mean, your folks are in Africa, aren't they, Eric? I, you know what? I know because I just know a little bit that there are dialects in Africa that just make noise. Isn't it true? I mean, they'll... You know, for all I know, I could have just said, praise God in some African dialect right there. Isn't that true? It's true. Yeah, he's shaking his head. It's true. Now, if I did that this morning, let's just say, (laughs) you may say, well, you sound like C-3PO. I mean, that's what. (laughs) My point is this. You say, well, I I didn't get it. It's. Hey, hey, God got it, didn't he? I just said, praise God in some African dialect. For all you know, you don't know. Say, well, how do you know? Because the Spirit bears witness. (laughs) But I believe there's a language of the kingdom. And the scripture tells me that when I'm speaking the language of the kingdom, that I I can cut through and get to God. 
This isn't irrational stuff. I call it transrational stuff. This is stuff that supersedes the natural. I'm not fighting in this natural realm. Just go ahead, knock yourself out fighting in the natural. As for me, I'm fighting in the spiritual. And I'm going to get every tool that's available to me implemented in my life in order that I can navigate this life successfully and victoriously. So I don't push it on anybody. If you don't want all the tools, that's your business. I'm not pushing it on anybody. But as for me and my house, we've been called to victory. Amen. And then finally, seven, just any paradoxical direction. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that God will speak to us with weapons of warfare. For instance, I've seen this through the years that people have great debt. And so how do they break debt in their life? How do they break the enemy of debt? They start giving more. See, that doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Like forgiving 70 times 7 does. Like going the extra mile. Giving them your cloak also. Do you understand that most of the Scripture is paradoxical in its nature? That the minute you try to make sense out of it, you're going to fall, fall, fall back into the carnal reasoning and that there are times God will call you to do things that are, that are paradoxical, things that don't make sense to the natural mind. It, it, it works out in the spirit. Folks, I'm here to tell you, in October, when we started Mission Madness, I mean, were we paying our bills? Sure, we were paying our bills. And, and just like any church, there are recessionary issues that come. So we're paying our bills. We're staying where we need to be. There wasn't anything, anything bad going on, but it's not like there was a lot of moving forward that was happening either. So what do you do in order to raise your income? What do you do in order to solicit uh, more giving from people? What do you do? Do you stand up and just beat them and say, give, 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 give? Or do you just say, let's just give it away? That's what we'll do. Fooey. Fooey on the budget. We're just going to give it away. We'll build two houses in Haiti. We'll do 338 boxes and all the $7 that are attached to every box. We'll just keep giving. We'll give coats away and we'll give cans away. And we're just going to, we're going to, oh yeah, 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 Nicaragua. Let's give another few thousand dollars to Nicaragua. Let's just give it away. Give it away. Doesn't make a lick of sense in the natural. Let's just give it away. And what does God do? He raises up all income. Oh my goodness. It just reminded me once again. Once again. That the minute you drop back into reasoning is the moment you, 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 you cut God's hands off things. And the minute you just walk in simple faith, God begins to move again. On your behalf, I'm done with this. Unconventional weapons. We were in Pennsylvania on that Saturday morning. About a hundred guys got up. Think about this. We had to get up at about 5 a.m., 5.15 on a Saturday morning. And you're out of town. And we all took vans and we went into downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And a hundred guys went down to the Planned Parenthood clinic. And uh, we just lined up on one side of the street and on the other side of the street. A hundred guys. Now, a hundred guys may not sound like a lot just numerically, but when you start lining them up shoulder to shoulder on a street, my goodness, that looks like that looks about five times that many. And Pastor Keith Tusi was there, and he's been involved in this for years. And so he understood the bubble zone. There's a bubble zone around this clinic. 
that kills thousands of preborn children every year. And we were just standing there. And he said, this is what we're going to do today, guys. This is all we're going to do. We're going to sit here and we're going to stand on the streets of Pittsburgh and we're going to pray in the Spirit. And we stood there and we prayed in the Spirit. That's all we did for one hour. Just praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit. Then at the end... Kind of, well, first of all, I have to tell you, on my side of the street, there was a bus driver that came by, pulled over, let some folks out. And then he looked at us and he said, listen to this. He said, I agree with what you guys are doing, but you're just overboard. I thought to myself, child sacrifice, standing on the street praying, and we're the ones that are overboard. How convoluted is our world? Pastor Keith, he was walking up and down this bubble zone, and he just, he just, I, he reminded me of a general just exhorting us, giving statistics and giving us understanding and comparing it to how the Assyrians would take their children up to the mountainside and sacrifice them by fire to the false god of Moloch. And I mean, it was just, it was an incredible moment just standing there. And all we're doing, listen, all we're doing is praying in the Spirit. That's all we're doing. And then the last moment came, he just stood, he was out in the middle almost of the street. He said, I want all you guys just to lift your hands toward this building. And so we all just lifted our hands. Can you imagine now we're on the streets? <laughs> I mean, even for me, my, my zones are being pressed right there. Even for me. And he says, I want everybody just to start shouting a war cry that God would drop this building. <laughs> you know, what do you do? We just gave a war hoop out. A hundred guys war hooping. What was funny is I was on the other side of the street so I could see the building. And you should have seen everybody looking out the windows going. <laughs> like, what's going on? And a bunch of guys are just going, ah! Kind of like at Jericho, probably. I just kind of get that idea. And we did that maybe, maybe five minutes or so, just nonstop war screaming. To shouts of faith. Oh, we break your power. The spirit of murder. We say dry up resources. Unveil the, the, the blinders on the deceived and the, the innocent. Oh God, we cry out. There's no bomb. No IED. Nobody hurt in the flesh. But in that moment, I saw the explosive power of God inside of men, Christian men. And when we walked away, we all, we all didn't win. We didn't win the war that day. But there was a battle that was won that day. There was, there was, a, there was a SUV that came, and I, for whatever reason, I know that SUV was going to stop there. And when it saw the men with their arms in the air, that SUV turned, and it punched its accelerator and burned its tires out going down the street to get away from what was going on. And I thought, glory to God, you run, you devil. God loves that person. You hear me? He loves the person. But he's going to, He's going to defeat that devil. 
unconventional means. We have a lot more power than you think. A whole lot more. Stand with me, will you?